this is Sports Jam. I'm Doug Doyle. You may notice my hat for today's session of Sports Jam because we'll be talking about one of the strangest golf stories ever. Sony Pictures Classics' new movie, The Phantom of the Open, hit theaters earlier this month. It tells the true story of Morris Flitcroft, a laid-off crane driver who at the age of 46 somehow chanced his way into playing in the British Open in 1976, having never played a round of golf in his life. The Open's record worst score of 121. But there's much more to this story. And my guest on Sports Jam is not only the person who wrote the screenplay for the new movie, but also co-wrote the 2010 book along with sports writer and author Scott Murray in 2010, The Phantom of the Open, Morris Flitcroft, The World's Worst Golfer. Actor. Writer, comedian, Simon Farnaby joins us. Great to see you on Sports Jam. It's great to be on Sports Jam. Thank, thanks for having me, Doug. It's a pleasure. You know, I have followed your career. You've been in so many great projects and simply hilarious and uh, an inspiring actor and writer as well. We'll talk about your works as we move along this show, including a new work that's coming up that is a prequel to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. But we're here to talk about golf today. And when it comes to golf, you grew up around golf. Your dad was a greenskeeper. Is that what attracted you to Morris Flitcroft? Yes, um, I grew up around golf. Um, my dad was a greenkeeper at Ganton Golf Club in northeast of England, which is quite a prestigious golf club. But, you know, I don't know what it's like in the States, but greenkeepers are sort of seen as the the lower echelons of the golfing, you know, golf clubs are like little sort of parliaments, you know, they're like little governance and you got your president and then it goes all the way down and at the lowest rung is the greenkeeper. So, and I, I sort of fell in love with golf. My dad uh, taught me and I was really good, but I couldn't understand why the members looked down on me on the juniors really um, in those days. The juniors and the women were sort of second-class citizens, and you were allowed to tee off for about five minutes every other Tuesday. Uh, it's a bit different now, but so when so when I first heard of Morris, um, so I'll have been oh I don't know like eleven years old or something, and um, me and the rest of the juniors, he was like one of us because we didn't know much about him, but we knew that all the the senior members hated him. And they hated us too, or so it felt like. So we, so he was one of us. He he was like a folk hero to to um to us juniors because he sort of, you know, gave a little, uh, you know, um, little kick in the ass to the to the senior members, and we liked that. You've mentioned this is about class in this movie. There's a, there's a certain role of class in the Phantom of the Open because of where he came from. He came from Barrow and Furnace, a, a port town in England where, you know, there's only one way in and one way out, I guess. Right. Yeah. That, that was the, um, one of the things we noticed when Scott and I were researching the book and you go to Barrow and there's, I mean, there's still not many jobs there. It's a very poor area, but in the seventies or, or sort of leading, you know, forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, it was a, there was a sh big shipyard there and that was the only job. I mean, I guess you would call it a docker in, in the US, but that was the only option. You know, they, they called them shipyard fodder. The men would all go in, you know, they go in on their feet and come out in a box. And and 
Yeah, you're right. This film is a bit about class. It's a sort of birth lottery film. You know, it's sort of, it goes, where are you born and what, you know, tell sort of society makes us go, oh, you're from here. So that's your lot in life. You work in the shipyard and Morris, Morris just didn't want to do it. He actually tried to, to do a few different things before he found golf. He was like a comedy high diver. He was a stunt, he was a stunt diver and he couldn't do that either, by the way. <laughs> he, um, he found this card on a job center wall and it said comedy high, you know, well, not comedy. It was a diver, experienced diver wanted. And he went to the swimming pool and he just fell off the board. You know, he couldn't dive at all. And they said, well, that was just ridiculous. And he said, well, thing is, I'm a comedy diver. So he went touring with this troop, <laughs> sort of falling off the top board and um, making a fool of himself. But he, um, so he was determined to try and do something other than what, what the, you know, he tried to play a hand other than what was dealt to him, which was a very poor hand. And um, yeah, he didn't know anything about golf. Uh, he, so he didn't have anyone to tell him, you know, you're really not very good because golf, golf's a game you can play on your own. Uh, and, and he'd seen it on the TV, fallen in love with it, got some clubs from a catalogue, practiced on the beach, and he thought, hey, I'm, you know, this looks like, this is similar to what I've seen on the TV. So I think I'm ready for the Open. And he'd only been practicing about, you know, a month. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think his story is so relatable to, as you mentioned, to you and to so many others who have watched any kind of sport and said, I'd like to try that. I think I could do that. But we all kind of have a sense of maybe we won't get there. But you have to give Morris credit because even though he, through an administrative error, got into the British Open, he was a dreamer. And I heard the wonderful Academy Award-winning and Tony Award-winning actor, Sir Mark Rylance, who plays Morris in the film, talk about he is the great dreamer. I didn't choose golf. Morris chose me. It was destiny. Ah! Sorry! Flippin' heck. Where I come from, the only job was the shipyard. But I did have ambitions, of course. I'm going to have a crack at the British Open. Golf. Welcome on the tee, Maurice Flitcroft. Don't adjust the television. This is actually happening. Dreams are what the world is made of. I would think that so many people, even though he got criticized, he got banned from other tournaments, Maurice Flitcroft, there's even a tournament named after him now, is someone that you have to adore. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I, so, so as I say, I heard about him as a junior and then when, when he died in 2007 and, and um, I'd sort of forgotten about him, you know, and, and uh, until 2007, you know, sort of 20, 30 years later. And um, he was in all the broadsheet newspapers over here. So that he was in the Times and the Guardian and the Telegraph. And, and um, as soon as I read his obituary, you know, like like you say, I, I sort of fell in love with him. I sort of started laughing. And and I think it really, I've tried to work out what it is that we love about him. I think it's because for most of us, sort of humiliation is our worst nightmare. You know, it, it's the stuff of nightmares to be, I often dream of, you know, having been an actor, of being on stage and not knowing my lines. And, and that's the equivalent of what Mark Boris was doing. You know, he was in somewhere where he didn't belong. He wasn't skilled. I mean, he didn't know that he wasn't those things, but even when he found out, he was like, well, you know, 
I, I gave it my best shot. I gave it a go. So I wasn't quite as good as I thought I was. Never mind. And and I love that about him as well. But just the sheer uh, fearlessness, I suppose. Most of us fear that, that you know, we don't try things sometimes because of that fear of humiliation. But we only have one life, you know. Um, well, that's one theory anyway. So, so make the most of it. <laughs> that's what he did. Here is the book that Simon co-wrote in 2010. And uh, in the back, you can see a picture of Morris. And when it comes to being banned from other tournaments after he got into the British Open, he tried and tried again under all kinds of disguises to get back into tournaments and have a little bit of success. Are you going to try again, Morris? An Open Championship should be open to everyone. I want them bowed from every club in the country. What about if you to enter someone else? Bonjour. From Paris, France, Gerard Hoppy. He's a Nazi dresser. I'll give him that. Merci beaucoup. Simon, I wonder if you could read from page 247 of your very funny book, The Phantom of the Open, and uh, give us a sense of what he was really like. Okay, so I'll do my best. I don't have my reading glasses, but so if I if I stumble, forgive me. But on the morning of his fourth open attempt, Morris's ever-supportive wife, Jean, helped to create Gerard Hoppy, gluing to his face a spectacular drooping moustache favoured by Mexican revolutionary Emiliano Zapata and placing a ludicrous checkered deerstalker hat upon his head. But despite his dashing look, Hoppy slash Flickcroft's performance in the 1983 regional qualifier at Pleasington near Blackburn got off to a familiar start. Reports vary as to the quality of his opening shot. Morris's account describes, quote, a beautiful drive hit straight down the middle, which was, quote, much appreciated by the watching gallery. His playing partner, Michael Moore, a young assistant professional from Turnbury, recalls him, quote, topping his drive on the first hole. He immediately asked his caddy for the seven iron, which I thought was very strange as he hadn't looked at his lie or seen how far he was from the green. His caddy was a strange chap as well. For the record, end of quote, for the record, Hoppy's caddy that day was a ponytailed gent trading under the spectacular moniker of Troy Atlantis. It was his son, Gene. <laughs> oh, just fabulous. And, and we come to expect that from Simon Farnaby. And uh, so funny in how you describe what's going on. But really, the, the, this guy didn't need fantastic writing. He was a funny guy who actually got his son involved in his activities and in the movie, we find out that that is a, a difficult relationship uh, at times. But his wife that you mentioned, Jean, in that excerpt is played by the incredible Academy Award-winning nominee actress Sally Hawkins. Whatever happens, no one can say you didn't try. What a great opening drive. Have they got the real Morris Flitcroft? <laughs> Oh, I think that's him. Morris Flitcroft. Severiano Ballesteros. You what? Solo llámame Seve. What's he? Seve, Seve. Hasta entonces. Right, yeah. Hasta uh, cojones. What a cast. 
Nice to have your book and you have Mark Rylance and Sally Hawkins playing the lead roles, huh? Yeah, amazing. We, we were very lucky. I think Steven Spielberg said Mark Rylance is the best actor in the world. And when we got him, Craig, the director, texted me and saying, we've got the best actor in the world. So, and he said, Mark said, you know, I've never been offered a comedy before. And um, so we thought, oh, God. But of course, he was brilliant. He's a great sort of clown, Mark. Um, and he, he gave Morris that dignity, the dignity and failure that he needed. You know, another performer might have played it more for laughs or more making fun out of Morris. But, but no, Mark played him like a, you know, a god. A god of uh, <laughs> a god of failure, and and Sally Hawkins, uh, Craig and I, Craig the director and I both worked with her. I worked with her in the Paddington movies, and before then we go way back. We used to do live stuff on stage together many moons ago, and Craig knows her from a film he directed, wrote and directed called Eternal Beauty. So that was um, thankfully Sally liked the script and, and decided to do it. Um, which is great, but you know, you mentioned that his his sons there, and that's right. Well, he had three; he had two sons with with Gene Morris had, and, and a stepson, and the relationship there was fractured. But with his with his sons, um, Gene and James, who were twins, um, they so Morris sort of installed his philosophy of, um, you know, go for your dreams, and and the twins went for their dreams and became world disco dancing champions. So as much as we talk about failure, and really I think this film is a sort of study of failure or rather a study of success and, and what we view as success because Morris went for this thing that was beyond his reach, he failed, but his sons went for something else and succeeded. They were world champions. Now it just so happens it was world champions of disco dancing, which has had a very short shelf life. <laughs> <laughs> which again is nobody's fault who who can say you know they might have had better luck if they'd have trained as airline pilots but they trained as disco dancers and and that was that i would give them a lot of credit I used to do those line dances and and you know when saturday night fever came out i remember being with my sister and going to the the dance clinics and, and learning all those dances so i can appreciate that they were so good at, at what they did you, you mentioned Sally Hawkins playing, you know, his wife, Jean. Jean's an interesting character, too. She's so supportive of her husband's wacky dream. Yeah, it, it was, um, it's a strange one. It's a good example of how screenwriting, um, you know, you, you, I sort of, you can learn a lot about screenwriting and read all the books and, and um, they'll tell you how characters are supposed to progress, but if you're dealing with a true story, you have to um, adhere to that story. And so it would have been easy. And in fact, in early drafts, I had Jean wavering in her support and, and wondering if it was the right thing and telling Morris to stop doing what he was doing. But the truth was, is that she didn't do that. She, she supported him. And so we made a virtue of that being quite unusual. You know, it, it's really very odd to have to have somebody who supports, especially someone who's doing something so ludicrous. And I think she knew that he wasn't good enough, but still she supported him because she, she adored him. And um, 
he'd done so much for her and 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 she thought well i'm going to support him come come what may we've heard of wedding crashers we've heard of <laughs> others who've got into events at the white house or government events that aren't supposed to be there but this error that allowed him to be in the 1976 british open you think about it it wasn't that long ago and such a prestigious event how could that happen simon well in those days you had to um you had to fill out a form and you had to put if if you were a professional you had to tick professional and if you're an amateur you would tick amateur and then you had to put your handicap and morris said it just got too complicated he did originally tick amateur but he didn't know what handicap meant i mean he literally he was writing down his ailments you know he had a bad back and false teeth and and he thought that's what it meant and then he realized that his wife said you know you don't have to you don't need any of that stuff if, you, if you're a professional and he said oh we'll just take professional then and then i think his his um his entry just got put through um because he took professional and and they didn't they weren't that rigorous i mean they were after that obviously uh i think that was the last year that they were they were lenient although but then to give them their due why would you think that somebody would try and play in the open when they couldn't play, it goes back to that point. It's just usually the stuff of someone's nightmares being somewhere where they they don't belong, you know. And the golf announcers have, are, are hilarious in this as they uh, watch him get ready to address the ball and things like that and just went along with it until, <laughs> until they knew otherwise. You talked about director uh, Craig Roberts. How is it working with a director when it's a story that you've, you know, you, you wrote the screenplay? How does that relationship developed is it you know is it really back and forth yeah it is I, um i'm lucky to have worked with a lot of good directors and paul king on the paddington movies and i'm still working with paul now and we're very sort of collaborative and craig was the same you know apart from craig's about 30 years younger than everyone else he's ludicrously young i think he's 30 no he's 20 years younger than me um and this is, I think, his third film. And Craig's just incredibly sort of enthusiastic, incredibly knowledgeable about movies. Um, he can talk about them for weeks. Uh, and um, we get on really well. We, we uh, uh, um, talk about the script a lot. I want that input because there's no point in... I always think director's not going to shoot something good if he doesn't believe in what he's got there. So I, I just make sure that... Craig believes in what's there and, and um, feels like it's, it's going to work. Otherwise, there's no point doing it. And thankfully, we share a sense of humor as well. So that helps because um, we shot this in, in a, a COVID lockdown as well. So a lot of the time I had to leave Craig to it because they wouldn't let so many people on set. Mm, I'm um, sure that was really challenging. Yeah, I mean... Um, Sometimes that I'm happy to do that because it means I don't have to get up at five every morning. But uh, <laughs> thankfully, I had someone I could trust in Craig and the producer, Tom Miller. This movie and the book is, is hilarious, heartwarming and, and really unbelievable when you think about what took place. But Simon Farnaby is our guest here on Sports Jam. He's a member of the British Horrible Histories troupe, in which he starred in the TV series Horrible Histories, Yonderland and Ghosts. 
He's written and appeared in films such as Minehorn and Paddington 2, and in the BBC sitcom Detectorus. And in 2017, as he mentioned, he co-wrote with Paul King, Paddington 2, a very, very successful film. And now is working with him again on, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, the prequel to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Wonka. You know, mm. I, so many people love Willy Wonka, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I enjoy that on Broadway. What's your interest in that? Why, why did you want to tell this story? Um, well, why wouldn't I? I love the book, you know, uh, Roald Dahl's book, um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory as a kid. is one of my favorite books. I love the character, love the sort of magic, the chocolate. I mean, just great. And, and um, no disservice to, to the Tim Burton film, but I adore the Gene Wilder film, um, the 1973 version, uh, even though it's very ropey and, and um, you know, all the sets are made of plastic. and <laughs> But it's just magical. It's just incredible. He scared um, me in that film, Simon. He, he, I know he's, I know he's, yeah. it's a very interesting character that Gene Wilder played in Willy Wonka. But as a kid, I was a little bit frightened of him. Yeah, I mean, um, I think, I think, I think you're supposed to be. I mean, he's quite a strange character. And what he's doing is um, testing all those kids, you know, to, to, but ultimately what he's doing is quite, is quite kind. You know, he's looking for an heir, you know, because he doesn't have any kids. So, so when you look at it from that perspective, you can probably forgive some of his darkness. But he is a strange character. He's a strange, has, has a darkness to him. And, you know, we'll be exploring that. And when will we see Wonka? Uh, I, you know what? I don't know. We're sort of, um, well, Paul King's editing at the moment. It certainly won't. I don't think it'll be this year. It'll be next year sometime. When and, I don't and I know the star of the show, he, he certainly looks like he would play Wonka extremely well as a young man, right? Timothy Chalamet. Yeah. Yeah. He's, He's got great. that look, doesn't he? Yeah. Bit of mischief in his eye. He's going to be, I think people are going to be pretty amazed by, by him in the role. You are somewhat of someone who encapsulates Morris Flitcroft because you're interesting, you have depth, and you're funny. So you kind of have his whole aura about him. And you mentioned how you grew up you know, around golf too. So it is kind of a perfect match for you. Where does the comedy side of Simon Farnaby come from? Oh God. Uh, good question. I don't know. Well, uh, when I, I used to do plays um, at school and when I would speak, uh, um, everyone would laugh. And um, that was a, a disappointment to me when I was younger, because, um, you know, like most kids, I wanted to be, you know, like the, the leading, the, the romantic lead, you know, I, want, I thought I was James Dean. I mean, you know, I've, I've got a bit of the hair, but not much else. So, um, uh, and then, so, you know, if that's what people do when, when I get on stage, I thought, well, may as well embrace it. And I do like, I like to laugh and I like, 
making people laugh and I like it when my friends make me laugh and um you know so I guess it 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 comes from there I just I just I love comedy I always did as a kid you know Faulty Towers and and Monty Python and we had a show called The Young Ones which I used to love and I just gravitated towards all that all that silliness but to go back to your point about me I suppose I've discovered this as I've been talking about the film that the whole um, story or the film has a sort of Flick Croftian uh, uh, sort of uh, had a Flick Croftian genesis to it in that, you know, I really didn't think anyone would be that sort of interested in this story or, or I wondered if they, they would. And when I, when I first read those articles, you know, in, when Morris died, I, I wrote a screenplay straight away because I thought I was so excited and, and I wrote a really bad screenplay. And I suppose that's the equivalent of Morris just going out and diving straight in <laughs> and, play, and, you know, going to the British Open. I sort of went, I'm going to win an Oscar. Um, but that was in 2000 and that was before I wrote the book, actually. So I really didn't know what I was doing at all. Um, so I guess I do have a bit of Flickcroft in me. Um, and then I realised I wasn't, it wasn't quite good enough and sort of spent the next 10 years trying to make it good enough. No, that's interesting. It is, I guess, you know, as a, as a screenwriter, playwright, author, comedian, failure comes with the job. You just have to be able to bounce back, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to, um, maybe that's another reason I love Morris so much, you know, you have to take risks. Um, and in comedy, you know, you mentioned we have a, a group, you know, Horrible Histories and Ghosts. And uh, and actually we have like writer's rooms on the Paddington movies and stuff. And You've got to risk saying, you've got to say something and risk it, no one laughing or people, you know taking a piss out of you for saying something that's painfully not funny. Um, so you got to take risks, but if you don't, um, you, you, you know, you got to accept that failure is going to come, but um, it's the only way you get good things happening. Has there been a response to the film that has touched you the most? Um, yeah, well, we had... I can't remember which screening it was, but an old lady came up to me and said, um, do you know, I'm going to go and learn how to play the piano. And she said, I've always thought I'd like to, but I never have, I th because I thought I'd make a terrible racket and my neighbours would complain, but I'm going to go and do it because what the hell, you know, how bad can it be? And I was like, great, that's brilliant. That's exactly the sort of, response we want from the film that's beautiful that's really powerful stuff yeah it was, it was a very sweet moment and and um you know i've heard that a few times it's, it's and that's what we that's what we wanted we wanted people to go i mean in a way morris morris failed for all of us you know he's i mean that's what we try and say in the movie there's a, there's a young guy who makes a speech at michigan and He's, he was a junior who, who um, you know, blew his chance to win the junior club championship, um, which I did many times. And then when he heard about Morris, he was like, well, maybe it's not so bad. So 
you know, Morris is failing for all of us. He's, he's, he's going, look, it can't be any worse than what I did. When I think about Morris Flitcroft, I, I really don't think about failure as much as I think about success that he got into the tournament. How many people would love to be in a professional event, no matter how you perform? Right. If it was if it's a rodeo and you fall off the, the, the bull on the first thing, you tried it and everybody was there. So I, I look at him as somebody who accomplished an incredible thing because at least he finished. I mean, I probably would have shot 160 for that round. So he actually, you know, he at least he finished the, the, the round. Yeah. I mean, there is a theory that one, two, one isn't too bad. You know, we've. Uh, um for for a, for a course that's set up for open qualifying, you're off the back tees. Formby's really difficult. The wind's blowing. There'll be a lot of ten handicappers that would take 121. Um, and also, yeah, again, you would have scratched or done a no return. That's what pros can do if they if they're having a really bad day. They just go look, forget it. Just put NR no return, and we'll walk to the clubhouse and forget about it. But he didn't. He kept going. Well, mainly because he didn't realize how bad the score was. <laughs> but um, you're right, at least he finished. And and he was a success in, you know, and this is what we explore in, in, in the movie. He wasn't a success in pure sporting terms. And he, you know, he didn't he didn't win anything. But he did win hearts and minds across the world. You know, there's there's Flickcroft trophies in America, there's a few of them, and 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 in Japan and um, uh, it, where where it's sort of the tournament's about fun, you know, where the worst score wins. And I think in Michigan they have two, they have two holes in the green, so you can shoot for whichever one you, you're closest to, and the prizes for the worst score. So, and it's all usually a fun day where people bring their families and their kids and their grannies and people who can't can't play. And and I think that's great. From Paddington 2 to Wonka to the Phantom of the Open, magical events you've talked about a little bit, Simon. So you get the magic opportunity that Morris comes back to this earth and he is on a golf course with Simon Farnaby and you are together. What do you want to ask him on the first tee? Um, are you going to give it another shot? <laughs> Because I bet he'd say yes. He'd go, he would. A new lease of life. Do you still play golf? I do, yeah. I I um I got pretty good. You know, I could have turned pro when I was 15, 16. Um, but I wasn't good enough to be, you know, on the tour. Uh, so you know, I could have been a pro at a at a club. So I took a different life. But I still I play off uh eight now so i still play to pretty good standard i love the game you know i love the game not sure what simon farnaby can't do in 2020 he wrote the book the wizard in my shed and now coming out with wonka the uh the new film so you're a busy guy and i think you've made the right choice uh, you may have been a success on the golf course but uh we are thrilled that you have chosen the path that you have as a writer actor and comedian simon farnaby congratulations on the new movie the phantom of the open and also your upcoming projects 
it's been a lot of fun having you on Sports Gen. It's been great, Doug. Thanks for having me. Um, I've loved it. And I hope your listeners go and see the film and like it as much as you do. You've been very kind. Thanks. Sports Jam is a WBGO Studios production. You can check out all the shows by going to wbgo.org slash sports jam or find Sports Jam with Doug Doyle on the NPR list of podcasts or wherever you hear podcasts. Until our next Sports Jam session, I'll see you at the game. Thank you.